Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Uh, my name is Chris Calzi. I'm the pastor here. And I'm so glad that you've chosen to join us as we continue our series, Love, Dates, and Heartbreaks. Uh, in 2009, uh, some researchers in Vanderbilt University of Georgia published a study. They had put some men in functional MRI machines, which allows them to see, like, real time how the brain is responding. And after they placed these men in these functional MRIs, they invited in their wives. And the wives were directed to have a series of types of conversations with them, building up to a point where the wives were asked to give them advice. As the um, wives were beginning to engage in conversation, they noticed the shift from where brain activity was when they were just talking about normal things to by the time it landed, when the women were beginning to give advice to their husband. And what they noticed was that it shifted from listening to a section of the brain that begins to question people's motives, thus confirming what all women have known for all of humanity, that essentially that husbands do not listen to advice when given to them by their wife. That study actually proved it. You've had that suspicion for a while. Now you have science to back you up, right? And so for the rest of those guys' lives, they just were every time, you know, they got into a conversation and she's like, hey, I'd like to give you some advice. Um, she just hold, hold up the picture of the image of their brain scan and says, like, is this you right now? Is this what you're doing? Because your face is telling me you're not listening to me right now, right? And which is kind of an interesting and obvious thing that happens in relationships. But what's fascinating to me and what was kind of an impetus for me early on after I became a Christian when I started to imagine uh, love and dating and marriage and all of that was that I, I wanted to make sure I did it right. Because there seems to be a general pattern that most people make relationship decisions that undermine the relationships that they're in. Most people make relationship choices that actually undercut the, the foundation of the relationship they're already in. Whether it's these men not listening to advice or whether it's in the small interactions and the little jabs and one-liners and zingers or in the cold shoulders or the passive aggressiveness and that a few weeks ago we kicked off this whole series with saying that there's two myths that kind of undergird a lot of these relationship decisions and choices that undermine our relationships the first one is the right person myth which is this idea that once you meet the right person everything will be all right and that's pretty much the storyline of most romantic comedies right they meet there's a little bit of relational tension in the middle. Uh, someone is always leaving to go somewhere, whether it's on a plane, a train, a donkey, an automobile, and the person realizes right before the moment that they're about to leave, and then it's usually a really dramatic, no one just calls an Uber and catches them the day before. It's always like right before they're gonna go through customs or right before they're signing the contract. But this, it always ends with that moment and they're all right, and they live happily ever after. Because once you find the right person, you're all right. But that's not how it works. It's a myth. 
And we fantasize about that right person. We dream about that right person. But none of us fantasize about becoming the right person that the other person you're looking for is looking for. And the second myth that undercuts is the promise myth, which is this idea that if I have a promise and a party, that's all I need. We put so much time, energy, and effort. Unfortunately, as a, a pastor and kind of sit on the other side of couples getting married, that one of the things that's heartbreaking for me is that I, w- I, w- I watch couples put more energy, time, and money in the day than all the days that follow it. They spend more money and time. They spend more energy thinking about and planning for the details of that day than all the other days that come after it. And that this idea that if, I just, if I've got the right person and I make the promise and we have a good party, that it's enough. And yet those two myths rob us of the future. Because what happens when you say, I do, is it makes you accountable. When you stand across an altar and say, I do to someone, you're now accountable. But if you're not capable, you eventually end up miserable. And if you spend time in misery for long enough, your I do eventually becomes, I'm done. In um, Death Valley National Park, the rangers have a, a saying for this pattern that they've noticed in the last 15 years. See, what happens is a Death Valley is a massive, sprawling, hot place with temperatures upwards of 115 degrees. And um, people, because it's vastness, they like to explore. And so they put in different locations in their GPS because they've never been there before. They end up blindly following each turn, each direction. And they've had it happen so often where people blindly following the GPS, end up in places where they've run out of gas because they're not near a gas station, or their car runs hot because they're in 115 degree, blazing hot sun, middle of the day, and they end up perishing out in the middle of the desert. And these park rangers, because it's happened so frequently, they now just call it death by GPS. And the idea that I think in our culture and in the culture of the backdrop of the passage I want to look at today, that we experience relational death by GPS, that we kind of just follow the patterns and the turn signals that the culture around us gives us, and in the end, we end up experiencing relational death. People's I do's become I'm done. And this culture that we live in is not too much different than the culture of the church in Corinth, almost 2,000 years ago. You have to realize that there's even some direct connections for us. In fact, so uh, a little bit of Roman Greek history. So Corinth's in Greece, uh, in the Greek area, influenced by the Greek way of thinking. The Roman Empire conquers, and, but because the Romans never had a deep infrastructure and philosophy and system of kind of, they, they just robbed it all from the Greeks. And so the, the Roman kind of empire took the Greek gods and they just renamed them. They just took them, renamed them, and said, oh, these are our gods. So the Greek god for um, love was Eros, E-R-O-S, which is actually the base of the word where we get our word for erotic, actually. Erotic comes from Eros, which was the Greek word, the name for the Greek god of love. The Romans, wanting to look original, said, well, we're not going to say our Greek god of love is, our, our Roman god of love is Eros. So they renamed him Cupid. 
Okay, so every time you see that little chubby baby with incontinence issues, zooming around with its little bow and arrow, you're actually witnessing a direct tie to thousands and thousands of years old mythology. But Eros and Cupid were the same. What marked both of them, and is still even present in the imagery of Cupid, was um, Eros and Cupid originally were far more handsome. They weren't chubby little babies. Um, they were uh, skilled hunters, which is why you see the bow and arrow still present in Cupid's hand. The idea was that Eros or Cupid, they were skillful hunters. They would track down the, the object of their infatuation, and when they weren't looking, they would hit them and capture them. They would become their prey, right? which is like such a romantic storyline. I saw her, I shot her with an arrow, and then I drug her back to my cave. But that is, in essence, the storyline of Eros. I mean, if you think back through, like, I was doing this this week, and I was like, this is so stupid, but I just kept chuckling. I was, like, in a coffee shop, and I was laughing to myself. Because if you go and you look at some of the love songs that are popular today, you see this still present, right? This objectification, this infatuation, this, like, fixation, this idea of the hunter and the prey. And so um, I was changing the word you in songs to taco, and so I was just singing, like, popular love songs and replacing taco. And so it's like, I'm in love with the shape of taco. Tacos, you know, my bed sheets smell like tacos. And I was like, that probably would need a doctor, um, I'm pretty sure. But I was just sitting there. I was like, we live in a culture that has reduced love to an objectification and to just this erotic layer. And that's it. Love songs are often predicated on the way you make me feel. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but love songs are some of the most self-centered, me-oriented songs out there. I mean, every once in a while, you'll get one that's like, girl, I'll climb a mountain for you. And I'll look at my wife and be like, sweetheart, I, I will walk up a moderately inclined hill for you. <laughs> if it's a big mountain, then we got other discussions. Because why do you want me to go to the top of that mountain in the first place? Like, you know, that ain't okay. Right? Like, I'll wear floaties and I'll doggy paddle across a small pond for you. Like, if, but if you want me to swim across an ocean, I just think you want me to die because you both know we're going to drown. <laughs> Right? Like every once in a while, you'll get those kind of songs, but most of the songs are oriented towards me and the way you make me feel and the way you shake your hips and what they do to my hips when it happens, right? Like most of the songs are all about me, which is not too much different from what these people were experiencing. They had a very self-centered, me-oriented way of living life and thinking about love in general. And so Paul writes this letter, effectively answering foreigners' question 1,900 years before they ever ask what love is. And he outlines in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 a series of answers to the question of what is love. Because he recognizes that they have operated off the wrong framework of love. They're taking their cues from what to do from Cupid which in the end doesn't build a solid relationship. It just builds a wall of trophies of people that you've captured, people that you've won over, and that people you've moved on from. And so Paul writes in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, which is kind of an interesting chapter. If you were actually to spend time studying, you'll see 12 and 14. Um, initially, you're like, this is so random. Why 13? Because 13 is a bit of a rabbit trail. But what's happening is that the entire 
the entire book leading up to chapter 13, he's noticed this tendency. They don't understand love. So he's, instead of just giving them direction, he's like, you know, I'm going to explain what love is because I think you guys don't know. And so he begins with probably some of Paul's most famous words in human history. In fact, most people, if they've never even heard of Christianity, they've probably heard a quote because this may be the most famous writing that's ever been written on love. It begins with the phrase, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, and it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. These beautiful words written about love. But the challenge is, is that we're reading this 2,000 years. We're reading it in English. And we're missing the language of the day that Paul wrote in, which was actually the Greek language, which is that tie over in the Roman Empire. And so what Paul does is he does something interesting. Where in the English, we read love is patient, love is kind. We, we see an adjective. We see something describing love. But Paul's not writing adjectives in the text, in the actual manuscripts, and uh, the, the copies that we have. In the original language, Paul actually writes verbs, not adjectives. The challenge is, is that it's really hard in the English to do what Paul is writing. We don't have a, a language structure that allows us to take love and turn it into a verb. But the actual language structure is like love, verb, love, verb. And then he gets to the not sections, and it's like love, not verb, love, not verb, love, not verb. And But then he uses an even special word for love, because the Greeks had multiple words for love. You had eros, which was the erotic, romantic love. You had another love that was like the brotherly love. But then you had this word agape, which is the word that's often associated with God when he says love. And agape... agape was this unconditional, I got your back, fully committed type of love. And so he says agape verb, agape verb, agape not verb, agape not verb. Now what's fascinating, what jumps out when you read this, is you realize that this entire section is filled with 15 verbs to communicate the essence of what love is. That love is an action. It is, it is something in motion. It's not just emotion. But for most of us, when we think about love, when we listen to songs about love, when we imagine love, we think about feelings. But Paul, out the gate, says love is about action and motion, not emotion and feeling. And I don't have time to go through all 15. Um, actually, Life Group, this week, one of the things they're doing is they're going to press into this passage a little bit deeper because there's so much inside of this. I'm just going to pick a couple of them to highlight the theme of what Paul's getting at for us to kind of kind of press into initially. He begins with saying love is patient. And again, patience is a verb. So he's kind of pushing us to this image of love that's a, an act of patience. Saying love isn't pushy. That the timer, the stopwatch for love, actually, and the way that this word is used around the New Testament scriptures, is that the stopwatch is determined for what's best for the person, not 
the impatience of the one doing it. That patience isn't you sitting there looking like this. Like, we need to go. We got to go. We got to get out of here. That love isn't a pushy. It's paces being set by the person on the other side. That love's patience is focused on what's best for them, not for you. This other-centeredness comes out immediately. That love chooses to move at the other's pace. I have an eight-year-old girl whose, um, whose pace is radically different from mine. My pace is of someone who's always late for the next thing that he's supposed to be at. I'm always walking fast. I'm always pushing quickly. And one of the greatest gifts that ever happened to me was I had an eight-year-old named Ella who, if I'm not careful, I will leave her as we walk through anywhere because the pace that she moves is so much slower. And yet every time that she's and I'm together, I have to engage my like gear shift and throw it down to a lower gear because that in that moment is is me modeling what patience looks like that not a dragging not a pushing not a pressuring where this looks like practically in in a romantic relationship to kind of go ahead and jump into that world right that love is patient means that the the pace of the relationship isn't being you pushing a person past where they want to go are you pushing the speed of the relationship beyond the, the pace that they can handle? Now, I'm not saying if they, they got a fear of commitment, that's a different issue, right? As, as the prophetess Beyonce says, sometimes you got to put a ring on it. Like, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that patience says that their pace, not my pace, is the pace that we're going to move at. That's what the picture of patience looks like. That he, he continues and he says, love is kind which is probably one of the most creative moments in this entire passage. It's one that you can skip over. Kind is a short word. But kind is actually, um, it's kind of cool for those like word nerds. Um, Paul actually invents the word for kindness. Like in, in the Greek language, it had never happened. And Paul invents the word for the verb kindness. Because kindness had never been used as a verb before. And Paul writes, makes up a word. Because he's so committed to trying to convey and to put explicitly in an explanation what love looks like. And he says that it's, it's the action of kindness. That is, kindness for some of us, um, oftentimes we, when we think of kindness or we envision it, we, we kind of picture this like soft-spoken or maybe like weak or timid individual. But kindness is the exact opposite of that. Kindness is an incredible thing. Kindness is actually an expression of strength. Because here's what kindness is. Kindness is loaning someone your strength rather than reminding them of their weakness. I'm going to say that one more time because this is really, really, really profound. Kindness is loaning someone your strength instead of reminding them of their weakness. I watch my wife do this quite frequently. I think she's really good at it. Um, whenever um, in our household or with um, some of your children, in fact, because Jenny runs the preschool area, um, when a kid comes up and they're in a moment of weakness, what I watch my wife do is that she will drop to her knees and that she will slow her pace, she will lower her voice, and in a moment, she loans the kids her strength. It's this incredible thing. I just kind of stand in awe of it every time she does it. Because what 
the typical pattern is in our culture is when we see someone's weakness, we actually want to bring it up. We want to highlight it. We want to emphasize it. We want to make a point so that they don't miss it. And what kindness does is it does for others in the moment what they can't do for themselves. And it's a display of strength. It's love's response to others' weakness. That's the essence of kindness. And here's the reality is that for most of us, we don't even think about, we don't even think about the word kindness. We don't think about that as we're dating. But what kindness does is kindness, instead of saying, well, they need to hear this. I need to get this off my chest. Kindness says, no, is this, is this for their best? And if it's not for their best, then I need to let it rest. I'm just going to let it go. That kindness, if you're dating someone, I would encourage you, pay attention to when they interact with someone in a moment of weakness. Pay attention when they interact with someone who is, a, is kind of a lesser than they are in their perceived hierarchy of the world. Because when you're dating someone, you actually get their best behavior. I don't know if you know that. Right? When you're dating someone, you're, it's not a preview of what's to come. It's, it's really like the best selective edit. Like, have you ever watched a movie and the preview was really good and then you, like, you watch the movie and you realize the preview was better than the movie? Like, that's, that's dating, okay? You're getting their best behavior. You're getting their intentional effort to deceive you and to highlight all the good things that they have in store for you. That you're not getting them squeezing the toothpaste in the middle. You're not, you're not getting them leaving their underwear on the floor. You're getting them behaving on their best. And what you need to do is you want to pay attention to people they don't have to be on their best behavior for. Are they kind in those moments? Do they reflect kindness then? Because people who are kind just as a means to an end, as a way of manipulating or, or kind of tricking you, in the end, they are typically mean people. If the only time you see kindness is to get something out of you, then in the end, what you find is that they typically are mean. And I have watched relationships, not just romantic relationships, but I have watched rem rem relationships destroyed by unkindness. It is such a demoralizing, demeaning thing to be around someone who's unkind. And Paul makes it his second point because he knows how critical kindness is. And then Paul moves into what you could call his toxic trio, right? He says that, that love does not boast, it is not proud, it does not envy. He's kind of walking through a series of these damaging things. He says it's that love allows the other person to shine. Love can celebrate other people's successes, even when you're not succeeding. Love doesn't get wrapped up. Actually, when he says the word um, boast, um, it's, it's actually a really interesting word. It's a, an image of blowing up something and, and inflating a balloon. So someone who's boastful or is bragging, they have a big head. And people with big heads tend to be bothered by other people who have big heads, 
which is normally a, a pretty clear indication it's going to be a struggle down the road. But typically, people who have an inflated self don't celebrate when other people are in the spotlight. And I wrote down the line, which is so cheesy, but I was like, you know, sometimes you're Beyonce, and then sometimes you're the backup singers in Destiny's Child, right? Like sometimes in life, you're the person on the stage, and you got the microphone, and you've got the solo, and it's all about you, and you're hitting those notes, and everyone's clapping and cheering. And then sometimes you're the person in the back with the egg shaker, and no one even knows you're on the stage. And they even give you a microphone. You're just there shaking. And that great relationships that demonstrate love is an awareness that sometimes you're the egg shaker and sometimes you're the vocalist, but you do them both with equal passion. And so who's your favorite person to brag on? Is it you? Are you comfortable celebrating other people's successes even when you feel like you're failing? Because when you get practical, this is what love looks like. Love is an intentional celebration of someone, even when your circumstances aren't winning ones. And that this is kind of that summation. There's so much word, like I said, Paul takes each one of these words has so much richness and meaning, but I have a limited amount of time. The, the next thing that he does, which we'll kind of want to, we'll end it on this piece before I go into the conclusion, is this next phrase where he says, love um, does not dishonor others. And this is another one of those words because it's, it's an interesting word. In our culture, honor is not something that necessarily bubbles up to our mind. But when Paul says to, to not dishonor, the word honor means, like imagine you walk into um, Target or one of your favorite stores this afternoon. Um, and you walk up to an item and you see that it has a price tag. So this idea of honor is essentially recognizing that the price tag is set by someone else and not you. And that you exchange, that you treat that item like the price tag it has, not the price tag you think it should have. And so if you see something that you think is worthless, if someone else has put a price tag on that thing that's so much bigger than what you would, that you treat it and you honor it with the value that it already has. So when he's saying do not dishonor, what he's essentially saying is he's saying treat people better than how you think you should be treated. Give them a higher price tag than what you would give yourself. Now Paul is a Christian and he's writing out a Christian worldview, which means that Paul recognizes that because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that the price tag of every single man, woman, and child, regardless of where they come from, regardless of what they've done, regardless of the, the nationality and the gender and all of that, regardless of any of those things, every single person walking on planet Earth has a price tag that hangs off of them that says priceless. And when you understand honor, it means even if someone is willing to be mistreated, you don't mistreat them. Some people, unfortunately, have grown up being mistreated and they have taken the mistreatment that they've received and they've allowed it to stamp their price tag. But I'm just saying, men and women, listen to me. If you're in a relationship and you are treated less than, you are not being honored. And you get the best right now. And so if someone mistreats you, I don't care what you think your price tag is, walk away. 
It is just not okay. Because honor calls us to treat people better than what we'd even treat ourselves. Now, are they actually more valuable than you? No, you're the same price. But honor is about you doing that intentionally. I remember right after um, my wife and I got married and we were returning something back, because, you know, when you, like, go through the engagement period, especially with us, like, you just kind of, you follow the culture's pattern, which was like, hey, you know what you need? You need really fancy um, dishware. Like, you need china. And um, so you need china that's, like, really nice. And so we registered for china that, you know, plates with little, like, silver things on it. And the entire time we're walking around, I'm like, like, why do we need this stuff? Like, you know, well, this is what people do. They, you know, you buy china. It's like, oh, there's a gravy pourer. I'm like, we don't even need gravy. Why do we need a gravy pourer? But it's like, well, no, that's what you do. And so after we got married, we realized that people bought us ridiculously expensive plates and gravy pourers, and we don't eat gravy. And so we're taking them back and exchanging them for real things that we actually need, you know, like towels and real plates and forks and knives and cups, not chalices that look like they came from King Arthur's table. And so, like, you know, I'm standing in line, and as we're standing there, um, this guy, his wife walks off from him. And then um, my wife named Jenny, she's like, hey, I'm going to go look for some of the items to, like, when you get the credit, I'm going to go find the items that were placed. I'm like, okay, cool. So as she walks away, this older gentleman turns around and looks at me, and he makes this snide comment about his wife. It's like, really, it's just mean statement, which, and, and I get, like, it's like the source of laughter in sitcoms, right? To put down and to tear down and to make fun of your significant other. But as I'm sitting there and this guy is railing on his wife, and I guess because he felt like his wife and my wife did the same thing, which was going shopping, like he thought I would, like, lean into it with him. And so I'm sitting there, and this guy is talking about this woman, and in my head, I'm, I have two different thoughts happening. One is I'm like, dude, I bet you won't say that to her face. Because I watched you three minutes earlier, and you're like, yes, ma'am. So I'm pretty sure she comes back, and I'm like, oh, you're the nag he was talking about. Nice to meet you. Yeah, he said you're a battle axe. You're just like your mom. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't supposed to tell her that. Right? Like, I'm like, in my head, one, dude, you're a chicken. Okay, first of all, I know that. Because you're like, yes, ma'am, to her earlier. But two is I, in my heart, was like made, made a solemn pact. I mean, it was like if I could have summoned all of like the glorious creatures of the universe to like I solemnly swear on this day and forevermore that I will never speak of my wife the way this fool just spoke of his. I mean, it was like, I don't want to downplay it, but in my heart, I mean, it was that serious. I said, no one on planet Earth will ever, ever hear me speak about my wife the way this guy just spoke about his. Period. Because, like, I wanted to hit that guy. Because I felt like he'd so dishonored his wife. And here's someone who stood across an altar, who had said the words through, like, the best and the worst. Through sickness and in health. And I'm like, dude... You said all those things to her, and you're here to make a return, and it doesn't even hold up. Like, there are far worse things in life than having to stand in line at a department store to return an item. And I can, I can honestly say no living human being has ever heard me say anything negative about my wife. 
period. You will never, and back, I will confidently say, if you ever see a video of me saying something negative about my wife, it is one of them fake videos that somebody's done turn, like my face, and put it on, you know, like when it's like, like the funny ones, but it won't be funny because it'll be me saying something about my wife. You'd be like, mm-mm, that's fake video. He swore to the universe he'd never do that. I know that's not true. Because I think this is so important when it comes to relationships. That I made a promise that day. I would be her biggest cheerleader and champion. Look, we're surrounded by people who are always trying to take that Sharpie out and cut through and call us clearance and mark us down and put us 30% off. We are surrounded by people who will gladly erase and relabel the price tag placed on you. But I swore that day that I will never, ever allow anyone to touch my wife's price tag with their Sharpie. That I will be her cheerleader, I will be her champion, I will be her supporter. I'll be the manager that comes up at the front when they, there's a conflict about the actual price. I'll be like, no, that thing's not on clearance. Here's the real value, because it ain't okay. And you may say, well, Chris, I think you're being a little overreactive to this, this man. No, no, here's what I understand. See, I didn't grow up with a good picture of this. And so much of what I'm saying today is not from me. It's what I, what I have gotten out of the Bible through the lives of, of just a handful of men who've modeled this for me, who've taught me what it looks like, because I didn't know what it looked like. And that I recognize that if I love my wife, like one day she will leave me, then I never have to wake up fearing that she will. If I love my wife, And I promise to love those around me, my kids, my friends, my family members, with the realization that one day their hand will slip out of mind. That if I love people for a small, small time, then I never have to fear the day. I never have to worry about being the source of regret for them. And that I believe we should leave people better than how we found them. That we should leave people better than how we found them. And then that is what it means to honor. Because here's what I honestly know, and why I make a big deal out of the honor piece, is that my wife is surrounded by all the evidence she needs to to justify leaving me. My wife is surrounded with all the evidence that she needs to justify me not measuring up. If she wants to point to how I leave my underwear on the floor, which is true, I confess. Somehow I lack the ability to move it from here to the three feet to there where, you know, like the struggle is real. Right? Like if she wants to look for justification that I'm a, I'm a sloppy mess who would be living under a bridge, sucking on a bouillon cube without her. Like she has all the justification in the world. Like we even have a running joke, which is kind of a morbid joke. But I'm like, you know, like if I died, you'd be okay. But if you died, it'd be really scary. Like I, I think I'd be like probably quickly homeless. Because she's just so stable and secure and like, you know. And I know that she has all the justification already. And that if you're in a relationship with someone, you have all the justification you need to stay. And you have all the justification to leave. And honor says, I'm going to look for the best. I'm going to look for what's there. 
what's admirable. Because most of us want to say, well, you know, it started off good, but then, you know, it went bad. And it's like, no, no, no. Everything that you hate about them now was probably there when you just couldn't get enough of them. You used to think it was adorable how they just seemed to not be organized. You used to think it was adorable that they didn't seem to, they always showed up a little frazzled and a little out of mess. Like you used to think that was adorable. Now it's driving you insane. You want to stab them while they sleep. But that used to be the thing you would just laugh at and chuckle when they walked in and they're like, oh, I forgot it was Thursday. And they showed up late for the date. You're like, oh, they're such a free spirit. Yeah, look at them. They're so spontaneous. And now you're mad because they won't plan vacation this year. You used to think the, the way they were just surprise you with gifts was fun. The way they'd spend their money excessively on you. And now you're irritated because you're drowning in credit card debt. See, the thing with honor is that it's an intentional choice to see the best. It doesn't mean that you're naive, no. I know my wife, I'm sure, has some weaknesses. I just haven't found them yet. And I'm not going to look for them. I know I have a lot of weaknesses. But my wife is kind and she doesn't remind me of them frequently. And what happens is that kind of relationship, it starts to do something. It starts to shape you. It starts to make you. And the reason all this matters is that Paul's words can either be source of a guard or it can be a guide. If you're not married yet, it's a guard for you. If you don't see in them now a picture of who you want to be with, like you're getting the best. If you don't see someone committed to these character traits, that I don't care how good they smell. I don't care how good they look. I don't care how good they shake them hips. Walk away. If you give, give, and give, and they take, and take, and take, then run, run, run while you can. Because something happens when you say, I do. You become accountable to them. And that Paul could call us to this. Here's the last verse. Paul wraps up all of this. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childhood behind me. It's actually harder than that. He says, I'm done with being a child. It's, it's far more forceful. Paul understood that when you give, when you take something that's designed for grown-ups and you give it to a child, it will appear complicated and confusing for them. If you hand a child tax software, if you hand a child your car keys, right, you hand your child, not your iPad, because they'll have that figured out better than you will, but you hand a child something that's designed for adults, and it'll look complicated. I, I was sick this past weekend. I'm still kind of working through it. And um, we were supposed to go do something. And, like, you know, I, I'm like, hey, we're going to have to go. And, and in my head, I know that if, if I tell my little girl that we're going to have to wait, that it's probably going to feel really sad for her. Because most children don't think about other people. Right? Like, the marks... The mark of childhood is that they're naturally selfish. They're naturally self-centered. They're impatient. They're self-seeking. They're easily angered. They're easily distracted. They're rude. 
They're quick to dishonor and to tear down and put down others, right? They are the opposite of what Paul was calling us to do in that list, which is why I think he uses this imagery. Paul was saying to the people in Corinth and by extension to us that there are two different ways. There, are, there is the way of Cupid, which is inherently childish, self-centered, self-seeking, all about me. And then there's the way of Christ. Because if you went through 1 Corinthians 13 and you replaced the word love for Jesus, it would still make sense. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Right? Jesus is not envious. He does not boast. He does not dishonor others. And Paul had been transformed by that love that Jesus had modeled. And what he gives us in 1 Corinthians 13 is an explicit explanation of who Jesus is. Because he is love. And that the reason Paul could call them to put childish ways behind them was because God had already done for them everything that Paul was calling them to do for others. That he had been patient with them. God has been kind to them. Man, I am so gracious. I am so grateful for God's kindness to me. I'm so grateful for God's patience with me. I'm so grateful that God wasn't easily angered. He didn't lash out. And he didn't snuff out or crush when he could have. And that Paul says, look who he is. When you were rebellious, when you were... Like, look, nobody had to sit a toddler down and teach him how to disobey. Like, we just step into this world knowing how to be little rebels. And yet, Paul will write in another passage that when we were still rebels, cosmic tyrants, he uses the word sinners, that God's, God died for us. His love for us preceded our love for Him. And because of who He is, we have a picture of how we can love. That because God loans us His strength in our weakness, we can give others our strength in theirs. Because God has given us forgiveness for what we've done wrong. We can give others forgiveness for what they've done that's wrong to them too. Because at the end of the day, love, as Jesus declared and as Jesus demonstrated, is an intentional leveraging of all that you have for the other's good. That it goes well beyond just good intentions, but that it's intentionally good. And so let us love like he loved. Let us love in such a way that leaves the people who call us friends, who call us co-workers, who calls us husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, and every other word that could ever be applied to you. Let us love in such a way that they'll have been better because they were with us. Because that's the love that's been modeled for us. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.